Well, hey, everybody, welcome to Grace Church. My name is Bob Bryce, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're joining us today. And also a special thank you to those of you hosting watch parties again. It, it, now, if you have not tried this yet, I would highly recommend that, you know, you just invite a few folks over to participate in our worship service together. And then if you're willing, would you maybe just send us a note and, and let us know how it goes? We, we just really love hearing stories from people, meeting new people and, and sharing time with one another together in community. So a few years ago, Someone sent me a link to a YouTube video that just kind of really stuck in my memory. It was a social experiment and it took place in the waiting room at uh, an eye doctor's office. Now, some of you may have seen this, but if, if not, I would, I would really recommend that you check it out because it is truly fascinating. Anyway, the, the deal is that all these people are in this waiting room and they're all in on it, except for this one young woman who shows up and has no idea what's going on. And so the thing is that every minute there's this bell sound. It rings over the loudspeaker in the waiting room and whenever it rings, the people all stand up and then they sit right back down. And so over and over again, this happens. And, and so at first, this, this young woman is just sitting there looking at what these people are doing and, and wondering what in the world is happening. But then by about the, I don't remember if it's the second or the third time, then she herself starts standing up and sitting down just like the rest of the group. And then one by one, the people, all the other people but her get called from the waiting room into the doctor's office and, and she's still there waiting. And the whole time, every time it beeps, everybody stands up, everybody sits down. But then she's the only one left in the waiting room. She's all by herself. And you guessed it, when she heard the beep, she stands up and sits down, even when no one else is there. And then shortly after that, a new guy comes in. He also has no idea what's going on. And, and again, within about three beeps, he's doing it along with her. And, and then more and more unsuspecting people keep showing up. And before long, the whole waiting room is full again. And they're all doing the same thing over and over again. Beep, stand up, beep, sit down. Uh, they have no idea why they're doing this. They don't know what the significance is. They don't know what the purpose is. They're just going along with it because it just seems like, well, this is what we're supposed to do. Now, believe it or not, the same kind of thing happens all the time in churches, especially in churches that are, you know, more like liturgical or formal or traditional in their worship style. There's, there's a lot there's a lot of standing up and sitting down and doing certain actions at certain times. And, and if you're a new person and, and no one has told you anything about what is going on, you're most often going to find yourself just trying to fit in and, and follow along with what everybody else is doing. But I, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. There's a really good chance that many of the other people don't know what they're doing either. They have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. They're just doing it. And one of the best examples I can give you of this is the Lord's Prayer. And when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, I see churches that tend to fall into one of two ditches. 
On the one hand, you have churches like I grew up in, and maybe you did too, that, that, that pray the Lord's Prayer every week. Everyone, you know, has the words memorized and, and they all say it together at the same time and usually at the exact same point in the service. And when you kind of look around the room, it's almost like everybody is on autopilot. But then you've got the extreme other end of that. Which, which really comes from trying to avoid that, trying to avoid this going through the motions and trying to make sure that, well, we're not just doing things just to do them. And so, so these churches completely eliminate the Lord's Prayer altogether from worship services. And, and a lot of times when you ask, you hear things, well, well, it's, it's just too churchy. Uh, or, or it's just so, some old worn out tradition. And it, you know, it's the same every time. So it really doesn't even count. And you know, we would just rather have our prayers be extemporaneous. So we know they really mean something. But is it possible? Is it possible that both of these ditches can actually be avoided? Is it possible that we can instead learn how to earnestly and honestly follow the Lord's leading on the path that he's laid out for us and, and to do it without everything turning into, you know, like an empty ritual that we don't understand or that we don't find meaningful. Now, I believe it is. And so exploring and discovering that together over the next seven weeks is where we're headed. And so we're going to start that today. But before we dive in, let me just pray for us as we get going here. Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you that uh, you continue to bring all things to you through your divine plan of reconciliation. And so, Lord, even though sometimes we still feel very spread out, we're thankful that you continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to knit our community together. And so as we're gathered together and centered on your word today, Lord, would you just please by the power of your spirit, reveal truth to us. Change our hearts. Show us what you desire for us to know, not just in our heads, but in a transforming way that changes our hearts and that we leave changed from this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer is found in two different places in the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Matthew at the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It runs through chapter 5. And then in, in chapter 6, we, we find what we call the Lord's Prayer. And then again, it, it, it's, uh, it's reviewed in a slightly different version in Luke chapter 11. And, and this time is where the disciples actually ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. And so we're going to be using both versions of this prayer all throughout this journey series. And uh, I just want to start out by saying that even though we, we commonly refer to this as the Lord's Prayer, we really conceptually should probably better understand it as the disciples' prayer, right? Because Jesus obviously already knows how to pray. I mean, he's all throughout the New Testament. He's, he's praying through the Gospels. We see him praying and praying and praying. So he knows how to pray. And it's right after he's done praying that his disciples say to him in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, I bring this up because we often overlook the significance of, of what is really happening here and what it means, not just for the disciples, but for us too. 
because these disciples have been with Jesus, with Jesus, physical with Jesus. They are his apprentices. They, they, they've eaten the same meals. They've, they've slept on the same dirt. They've walked the same roads. And all the while, Jesus has been teaching and doing amazing things. Yet, the disciples don't know how to pray. They see Jesus praying. They hear Jesus praying. But, but they don't know how to pray themselves. They, they need to be taught. And that's what they're asking for. And so, I wonder, for us... When it comes to prayer, who taught you to pray? Or, or maybe a better way to ask that is, were you ever really taught how to pray? Because I know I wasn't. You know, in the church I grew up in, we, we talked an awful lot about prayer, but, but no, really, no one really taught us how to pray. So at a young age, I, just, I guess I just kind of concluded that, well, prayer is just nothing more than closing my eyes and asking for stuff. And that's pretty much what many, if, if not most, Christians think it is still to this day, right? We just kind of close our eyes and start saying, God, give me this. God, give me that. God, do this. God, do that. God, don't do that. We just do this over and over again. But is that really all that prayer is? Because it certainly seems like the disciples know that there's more to it. And so I wonder for us, do we also realize and recognize that there's more to it? And so this is one of the main reasons why I, I don't think we can be quite so cavalier to just quickly dismiss this Lord's Prayer and say, well, you know, just seems too churchy. We don't need that. <laughs> because if the disciples didn't know how to pray, they were with Jesus. They didn't know how to pray. And, and if we really haven't been taught how to pray either, then I don't know about you, but I sure feel like we can benefit from paying a little bit of attention to how Jesus told us we should pray. But lest we think that somehow that means, well, if we, let's just start praying it every Sunday and not even consider what we're saying, and that'll just solve the problem. Just saying the words is good enough. And, and Jesus addressed that problem too. And this time we're going to jump to, to Matthew chapter 6 and look at verse 7. Jesus says this, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. The Greek word that's translated as babbling here essentially means like continuing to speak empty words, words without meaning or, or words that we don't know what they mean. We just do it over and over again uh, in repetition. And so he's saying, well, okay, don't just memorize something and then repeat it over and over again and, and then think somehow God is going to be impressed with you. Because that's not the point either. And so, well, then what are we supposed to do? How, how do we pray? What, what do we pray? Well, in order for us to learn together and explore this together on this journey through the Lord's Prayer, I think it's probably best for us to start by just answering this basic question. Who are we praying to? Who are we praying to? Well, of course, the easy answer would just be to say, well, we're praying to God. But, but what do we really mean by that? When we say we're praying to God, what, what does that mean? What image pops into your mind? What do you see in your mind's eye when you think of God? Because 
Here's the truth. How we approach God makes a life or death difference in our relationship with God. It makes a life or death difference in our relationship with God. And so, you know, for, for some people, when they think of God, maybe they, maybe they think of some kind of, you know, cosmic or, or unknowable force. Or, or, or maybe it's like a, a blinding light. Uh, or, or others maybe kind of think of God as this sort of elderly, curmudgeonly old guy that uh, just is always mad because the kids are running through his yard or something like that. Or maybe we, we say things, you know, like the man upstairs and, and we're really just thinking, well, this is, this is somebody who is kind of like not engaged. Maybe, maybe he got everything kind of going and then he's now kind of off from the distance and just keeping his eye on things and, and watching to see how this all plays out. Or, or maybe because, you know, the world that we live in, we, maybe we think of God a lot like we do uh, Siri or Alexa or Google or something, you know, some, something that's always listening and always available on demand to meet our needs and fulfill our dreams. But, of course, none of these are how Jesus tells us we should approach God. And so when the disciples ask, you know, how, how, how should we pray? You know, Jesus doesn't say, well, you should address God as, as our creator or our king or, or, or our Lord, even though, of course, he's all those things and many more. But no, instead, Jesus says, when we approach God, listen, verse nine, this then is how you should pray. Our father. Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we are to call upon God as our Father. Now, to you and me today, it probably doesn't really sound all that radical because, well, we've probably heard it many times before, so it's not really surprising, not really shocking. But to the disciples, this would have been very shocking, an extremely unexpected thing for them to consider. To call God Father in this way was, was something that just wasn't done. And even though there are times in the Old Testament where God is referred to as father, it's, it's always in a more you know, like a broader sense. He's, it's always talking about like, well, God is the father of Israel or, or other times where, where father is used. It's, it's really to highlight God as creator of things. But the way Jesus is teaching his disciples and us how to pray is to call upon God as our father which is very, very personal. And so again, this, this is just, this is new. This is something that just was not done. And maybe this is something that you find very hard to do right now. After all, maybe you just bristle at the word father because maybe you had or have an earthly father who was, who was absent or, or very, very harsh or, or even abusive. And you're saying right now, well, look, if God is anything like my father, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with him. Well, hang in there. 
We're going to talk more about this in, in just a little bit, but, but just hang in there and, and please know that, that you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this. Many other people are in the same situation. And, and, and the, the, the reality of it is, for, for one reason or another, the, the very thought of calling God Father is radical for many different reasons. But why is that? Why is it so radical? What makes approaching God in this way so, so unexpected and so revolutionary? Well, today I want us to consider two main shifts that happen when we recognize God as our Father. And so when we know and recognize and approach God as our Father, first of all, He's not, or sorry, first of all, He is our Savior, not our Supervisor. He's our savior, not our supervisor. Now, when you think about the kind of relationships that we have with most of the other people in our lives, they are almost always transactional in nature, aren't they? Because at the core, they can usually be boiled down to kind of a system of, of uh, predictable inputs and outputs. I do this, I get that. I pay the Starbucks cashier, I get my coffee. I do my job, I get my paycheck. And even in the situations where it's not like an official, you know, contract per se, that's essentially the way most of our relationships function when you think about it. If I do these things, then you'll do those things. And of course, each of us must keep up our end of the deal or the contract will be broken and then somebody's going to be in big trouble. And so when it comes to these kinds of relationships, in essence, transactional or contractual relationships are based on what we do for one another. They're based on what we do for one another. They're based on, in other words, our performance. And if we're honest, I think it's okay if we admit that this is how most of us think our relationship with God works too. We tend to think that, well, if, if things are going well in our lives, then, then God must be happy with our performance. And if things are not going well, then that must mean God is not so pleased with our efforts. And if we're really even being more honest, that's really how we'd prefer it. Why? Well, because we think at some level it gives us a greater ability to control things. We, we would almost rather have a contract with God and, and one that, that has very clearly and neatly and, and uh, bite-sized defined transactional terms so that we know, we're assured that if, if we keep our end of the deal, then he'll be obligated to keep up his end of the deal. Then, then, truthfully, it'll be just like everything the world promises, right? We can control our own destiny. We hold the keys to our future and we can, we can make it be whatever we want to be. We can finally crack the code and get everything that we ever wanted. But, of course, there's one major problem here. When we start thinking like this, when we start heading down this road, we only really ever focus on the positive side of those possibilities, right? Because I think you probably know this too, 
But when it comes to grading ourselves and our performance on a curve, there is nobody better at it than us. And of course, we're often arrogant enough to believe that, that we can somehow live up to God's expectations, you know? And if we can't, well, it's only because he's just so darn wishy-washy sometimes. You know, if he would just spell it out, then I'll do my part and he'll do his part. And then he will have to give me what I want. Well, when I think about that, I really only have two words that describe this kind of thinking. Stop it. Stop it. This never has worked. It never will work, never has worked, never will work. Trying to relate to God through more and more precise and manageable rules, bite-sized rules, is exactly what expanded the original Ten Commandments into 613 commands. Because the Jewish religious leaders were quite sure that this was the correct way to approach God. They were quite happy with that. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, along comes this troublemaker, Jesus, who just starts messing up the whole system. He just throws the whole thing into disarray. And so when Jesus says we are to approach God as Father, then all of a sudden we're no longer dealing with God in a transactional relationship. This is no longer a, a contract relationship. It's, it's a family relationship. And family relationships are entirely and completely different. Because unlike contract relationships that are based on our performance or, or what we do for one another, family relationships are based on who we are to one another. They're based on who we are to one another. Just think about it for a minute. You, you, you no doubt have family members that do st stupid and annoying things that just drive you absolutely crazy. And when this thing kind of happens, what do we say? Well, we usually end up saying things like, well, you know, she is my sister. Or, or, or well, yeah, he's, he's a real pain, that's for sure, but he is my brother. The point is that the, the bonds that hold these kinds of relationships together are, are different. While, while one is based on performance, this is based on identity. And again, I do want to be careful here because I recognize that, that many of you have had difficulty and pain when it comes to your earthly father. But, but when Jesus says we are to approach God as father, we're meant to understand that relationally and spiritually, not uh, physically or, or, or biologically. And so when we say that God is our Father, what we don't mean is that somehow, uh, you know, God is an extension of our earthly Father or something like that. It's nothing like that. God is instead the perfection of what a Father should be. God is the perfection of what a father should be. Whereas earthly fathers will always fall short of perfection in one way or another. All of us fall short. Our heavenly father is perfect in every way. So what does that mean? Well, if, if we wonder what 
a perfect father is like, all we really have to do is, is turn to the person and the character of Jesus. And then we start to know because we know this is true because in Jesus or in John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. And in John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. So Jesus is the perfect reflection of the perfect father. Perfect. And so when we look to Jesus, then we start to understand a bit more about exactly who the father really is. And this should be the kind of fatherly image we have in our mind when we pray. And so that's the second shift that happens when we recognize God as our father. The second thing that happens is that we know through Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. Through Jesus, we're adopted into God's family. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done for us, when we believe in him and when we, when we trust him, then God adopts us into his own family as his own children. Now, Jesus, of course, was in trouble with this kind of thing all the time because the religious leaders would, would kind of hear him talk about this whole idea and, and they're, they're very troubled because when it came to his relationship with the father, they were constantly asking him, well, hey, what gives you the right to make these claims that God is your father? What gives you the right? Because they knew that what he was really saying by all of these statements was that, that he, Jesus, was none other than God himself in the flesh. God in the flesh. And now, because you and I are... <laughs> certainly not making the claim to be God in the flesh. Our question today is, is not really, well, what gives us the right to call God Father? Instead, it's who? Who gives us the right to call God our Father? And John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, really help clarify this for us. Starting in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In other words, Jesus was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, here's the really important part. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So our becoming children of God is not at all based on our efforts to try to, you know, somehow be self-righteous. But it's because Jesus is righteous. And he's given us his righteousness. He's given it to, to all who believe and trust him. And, and so this is all God's action toward us. 
Because think about how adoption works, right? The, the parent adopts the child, not the other way around. So in this case, God is, is basically saying to everyone who believes in Jesus, hey, look, even though you're not perfect, because of my perfect son, Jesus, you're now also my child. You're in my family. I already signed the papers and I sealed the deal with my Holy Spirit. And now, now there is nothing that can ever, ever break us apart. So this is a truly amazing, amazing and awe-inspiring reality that, that oftentimes today we just totally take for granted. But the early church knew how astounding this really all is. And so we've looked at this over the last several weeks, but the letter in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, sums this up nicely. It says, See or behold what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. These people were stunned stunned that God would do this for them. They were overjoyed at what it meant to have a personal relationship with God himself. This is amazing. They were overwhelmed by God's generosity toward them, so much so that all they could do is talk about it and celebrate it and announce this good news to others. And so the reality is, unless we too approach God as our father, and we are his children, then we're not going to be able to truly praise and adore him in this same way. Because praise and adoration are an overflow or an outflow of the appreciation and the gratitude that we have for a God who is so loving to claim us as his very own. A God who Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 is as giving the Holy Spirit to us to bring about our adoption into God's family. And that, that same spirit that lives in us testifies with our own spirit that we indeed are children of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So even though we don't deserve it, and even though we couldn't ever earn it, God amazingly still chooses to, to lavish, to spoil us, with his love, because that's what good fathers do. He wants to have a personal relationship with us, a personal relationship with you. And so it all comes down to, to this. God has already very, very clearly made a choice for us. He is for us. So much so that he, he sent Jesus to die the death that we should have died and to pay the price that we should have paid so that instead of us remaining outcasts and, and, and hopelessly bound by our sins, through Jesus, we amazingly get a seat at God's table. We get invited into God's family. And so how will we respond to God's graciousness? Will we continue and, and keep on thinking of God as a kind of a transactional level relationship? Will we continue to try to you know, negotiate better and better terms in a contract with him? 
uh, will we keep just you know, promising, hey, God, I'm going to do my part. Now you got to do your part. Or instead, will we, will we recognize and call him Father and believe and trust that Jesus has given us the right to become part of God's own family? Because how we approach God makes a life or death difference in our relationship with God. It makes all the difference. And so the Lord's Prayer is, is not some tired old tradition that doesn't mean anything. It, it, yeah, it's a model that Jesus has given us in teaching us how to pray, yes. But it's also, when you think about it, it's also a way that God reveals more about who he is and also who we are, not only to him, but who we are in him. And so that's why we want to take this time together over the next seven weeks and explore how good this father really is to us, his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for inviting us into your family. And thank you for the gift of Jesus who makes it possible. Thank you that we don't have to pretend to do this on our own. We don't have to pretend that we have to measure up and somehow earn righteousness. But instead we turn to you and recognize that you have given us your very son who is righteous. And he has extended that to us so that we might be brought into your family. So Lord, we, we're in awe. We're inspired. We're overwhelmed by your generosity. We ask, Lord, that, that you just continue to lead and to guide us and to show us the way so that we can grow ever closer to you. We surrender to you, Lord, right now in this moment and just ask that you continue to be our good Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.